Well, let's open our Bibles again this morning to the Gospel of Mark as we come to the closing portion of this Gospel. After spending almost two years, we'll have a couple more weeks to go as we wrap it up, but we're so thankful for what the Lord has shown us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Came to Serve has been the title of our series because the uh, the highlight verse in the entire book, the central verse in the Gospel of Mark, describes how the Lord Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And um, so that's why we've been focusing on the ways that the Lord Jesus has shown his humility and uh, servanthood toward us, and coming to save us from our sins. Mark 16, verse 14, we'll pick it up this morning. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. Excuse me. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will recover. Now, some early manuscripts of the Bible do not contain verses 9 through 20. That has led some Bible scholars to reject them. And that's why there will be varying uh, accounts in various translations uh, of the Bible. But most other manuscripts do contain them. And so really the conclusion of, of most conservative Bible scholars, that is those who take the scriptures as the word of God and seek to faithfully study them and apply them to life, have come to the conclusion that since nothing in these verses contradicts any of the other three gospel accounts or events that took place in the book of Acts, um, it's best to leave them in and um, to see what the Lord has for us here in these verses. Uh, that's the case here with the ESV, which we use in most parts of this church. Uh, it's also true of my personal favorite translation, which is the New American Standard Bible. So we're going to approach uh, these verses as well as what we looked at um, part of last week and next week as well, with a teachable heart and to compare the teachings here with other key scriptures. So chronologically, where we're at here, because we, verse 14 begins with the word afterward, so that's a time uh, kind of word, and so we need to understand uh, what is happening here. Well, what has happened is Jesus has been crucified on Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. Forty days after the resurrection, the Lord Jesus will ascend into heaven. And so between the resurrection and the ascension, during those 40 days, 
the Lord Jesus appeared to his disciples many, many times and taught them more things and gave them what I like to call uh, his marching orders. So he gave his marching orders to his disciples. And as we consider the marching orders to the church, there are two truths to notice and apply. Number one, Jesus called his church to make disciples, not decisions. And what I mean by that is that God has called the church not to just get people to make a decision for Christ, but to make a disciple of Christ. That is, to make followers of Christ. Not to get people just so emotionally hyped up that they just make a, an emotional decision whereby they, in a sense, in their heart, raise their hand to Jesus, but then it makes no difference in their life whatsoever after that. They continue to live as the way they had always lived. There is no real transformation of life. That's not what God wants. God wants us as a church to be making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to be preaching all of the word of God so that when the Holy Spirit gets hold of the heart of a person and draws them to faith in Christ, that is the beginning of a new beginning. That's the beginning of a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, Mark makes it clear here that um, Jesus rebuked his disciples for their unbelief and hardness of heart, um, which tells us that when a person becomes a Christian, not Everything is immediately changed in their life. This is a progressive sanctification. This is a progressive work. We still struggle with doubt. We still struggle with fear. We still struggle to obey the Lord. But the fundamental posture of our heart has changed. It has been shifted and redirected now toward the Lord and toward obedience to the Lord. And the command that Jesus gives here in verse 15 is really clear. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's our responsibility as a church. We are to proclaim the gospel to the world. We are to tell everyone we can possibly tell of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. We're also to do, as Matthew teaches in his gospel, we are to lead those who claim to follow Christ into the path of obedience. And that path of obedience begins, according to the New Testament pattern, with baptism. And so that's why it's worded the way it is in verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark is not saying something that's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. In other words, he is not teaching baptismal regeneration. He is not teaching that baptism saves anyone. What he is saying is that that there is an expectation that those who come to faith in Christ will let it be known to others through the obedience of baptism. Because you see the, the second phrase in verse 16 makes it clear what condemnation is based upon. That is, whoever does not believe will be condemned. It does not say whoever does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned. So he's clearly saying that the basis of our salvation is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work, and who he is as a person. But so important is the ordinance of baptism. So important is this as a step of obedience to those who claim the name of Christ 
that it's worded this way here in verse 16. But let's look back at Matthew's gospel to see a more thorough uh, presentation of what is called the Great Commission. That is what I like to call the Great Command. That is the marching orders that Jesus gave to his church. As we've been seeing throughout the series through the Gospel of Mark, that Mark is the shortest, most abbreviated of the four Gospels. And so we have so often turned to the other three Gospels to see expansions of explanation that we don't necessarily find there in Mark. And so if you turn to Matthew 28, we see again a reference to uh, the Lord Jesus addressing the 11 disciples. Uh, 11 because Judas has betrayed him and uh, he will soon be uh, ending his own life out of great grief and despair and the recognition of what he has done to the Son of God. Verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So they obeyed the Lord Jesus. They went specifically to the location that he told them to go to after his resurrection. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So they worshipped him. They understood who he is. Not just anyone can raise himself from the dead. But this is God, this is the Lord, Jesus Christ, this is the Son of God, and yet some still doubt it. Is this really him? Is this a figment of my imagination? And so they needed to grow in their faith. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. What you have here is a delegation of divine authority. God the Father delegated authority to the Lord Jesus Christ to establish his church. He now takes that authority that he's been given and delegates it to us to do one thing, that is, to make disciples. Verse 19, there is one command in this passage, and it is this, to make disciples, to make followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that involves a number of things that then Matthew refers to here. So again, we are called to make disciples, not decisions. Now, every genuine conversion to Christ involves a decision. There is a decision. There is an act of the will. There is something that is happening inside of us as the Holy Spirit is opening our spiritual eyes to the truth of who we are as sinners and the truth of who Jesus Christ is as the Lord and Savior. And there is, in the mystery of God, this working in our lives such that he moves our wills to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a decision. But it is far more than simply an intellectual decision. And that's why I'm wording it the way that it is. We live in a day and age in evangelicalism because of decades and decades of bizarre kinds of forms of evangelism and evangelistic methods. There's been so much emphasis in America on a person making a decision for Christ. If we can just get people to make a decision for Christ. You know what? I don't want that. I want to see the Lord using his gospel to make converts, to make disciples, people who are genuinely saved, and then their lives are changed and become fruitful for him. So I hope I'm making this distinction clearly enough. 
But there's been too many people who call themselves evangelists who just work overtime to get people to make a decision for Christ so that then they can add that that person to their list of the number of people that they have led to Christ. And then they go on, they leave those people stranded and go on to the next person that they then try to get to make a decision. Well, what happens to those people? You know, the church is a family, and so when someone is born, when a new Christian is born in this family called Cornerstone Community Church, we don't leave them stranded on the curb as an infant to take care of themselves, as happens in some parts of this world, where newborn babies are left somewhere to die, not cared for. Why in the world would we do that spiritually? But we come around that person, we nurture them, we feed them, we help them to grow in Christ. That's making a disciple. That's the difference between making a disciple and making a decision. Am I getting through? Are we clear here? Okay. So that's what we're called to. So, but what is a disciple? If Jesus commands us in verse 19 of Matthew 20 to make disciples, what in the world is a disciple? Well, the word mathetes means one who follows one's teaching, an adherent. Uh, Sometimes it could be translated apprentice. So this is a student. This is a follower. This is someone who actually ends up becoming like his teacher, which is very much what the Lord Jesus teaches in Luke 6.40. He says, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. Okay? So then Matthew goes on to say, How do we make disciples of all the nations? Well, the go is actually going, therefore. In other words, he's assuming we are obeying and we are going and preaching the gospel to everyone we can possibly preach the gospel to. And then, as people make a profession of faith in Christ as their Savior, as the Lord, then we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We help them walk through that first step of obedience as a new believer. And then we teach them, verse 20, to observe all that I've commanded you. That then means teaching the word of God faithfully from cover to cover. What does God expect from us as his adopted children? What does he expect from us as new creatures in Christ? And then Jesus gives this amazing promise. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You're not alone in this. I'm not giving you a job to do and then walking away from you. I'm giving you a job to do, and I'm staying with you to make sure the job gets done. And my spirit will be your helper, as he promises in the Gospel of John. So a disciple of Christ, clearly from this context, is not merely a person who confesses Christ, That is true, that is part of what it means to be a believer, but it is a person who intentionally attaches himself to the Lord Jesus Christ and is unashamed of him so that then he publicly declares that through baptism and submits then to the word of God. So obedience to Christ is at the very heart of the content of the marching orders that Jesus has left for us. 
And we could say it this way, that obedient describes the end result of uh, what we are called to reproduce as a church. We're called to reproduce disciples. So Jesus has given us his authority to carry out his mission and to teach according to the word of God. Why? So that more and more sinners like you and me come to saving faith in Jesus and then grow and grow and keep growing to be fruitful disciples, followers of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus called his church to make disciples, not merely decisions. Got it? All right, truth number two. Jesus confirmed the authenticity of the gospel message through apostolic signs. You notice in Mark 16 that um, the Lord Jesus says that there will be signs that accompany uh, those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons, speak new tongues, pick up serpents, not be hurt. There will be healings. There will be all kinds of miraculous signs. Now, the question is, what is the purpose of those? What is the purpose of those signs which were predicted? Well, the book of Acts actually teaches us the purpose of them, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 1. That God gave the apostles these miraculous spiritual gifts in order to authenticate the message of the gospel, that the message was truly from God and that then people's faith shifted from the sign to the scriptures, from the sign to the word of God as the final authority for all that we believe. Acts chapter 1 and uh, verse 6, pick it up here. There are 120 disciples of the Lord Jesus gathered in an upper room for a prayer meeting. It says, when they came together, they asked him, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but this is what is your business. In other words, it's not your business when the kingdom is established. This is your business. Your business is to be a witness of Jesus But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's our mission. That's our concentration. That's our business, all right? to take the gospel to be witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. We've talked about this a number of times in the past, but what you have here is a ripple effect that, that is going outward from where the gospel first originated. Jesus died and rose again in Jerusalem. That's where the first disciples were. And so the disciples then are taking the message outward, 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 outward to the end of the earth. And that's how we focus as a ministry. We're always praying and looking for ways. How can we get the gospel to Mayfield Heights, to Highland Heights, to Cleveland, to the state of Ohio, to the nation, to the world? That's how the Lord works. And the Holy Spirit is the one who causes fruitfulness in gospel ministry. 
Verse 9 then says, when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus is ascending physically, bodily, back to heaven. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So that's why we live now in between the two advents of Christ. He came first to be the Savior, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, did his soul-saving, sin-bearing work on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended back to heaven. Someday he will come again. Between those two comings is the work that he has left us to accomplish, which is to make disciples. There is coming a day, according to this scripture, verse 11, that the Lord Jesus returns from heaven and returns to the very same place, that mount, that mountain, where he met with his disciples. And we look forward to that day. We then see in chapter 2 the first major apostolic sign. That is a supernatural, miraculous sign from God that the message of the apostles is authenticated. It takes place on the day of Pentecost, it says in verse 1. Day of Pentecost arrived. I'm in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 1. They were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now notice, it says, speak in other tongues. What is other tongues? Hang on, Luke tells us. At this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his what? Own language. The gift of tongues, biblically speaking, is not unintelligible mumbo-jumbo that no one understands. Biblical tongues is God giving a person the ability to speak and understand a language they had never studied before. That's what's happening here. The gospel Jesus wants to spread to the world. Well, how is he going to do that? He's going to take all of these people who have gathered from all other places geographically to Jerusalem for the sake of celebrating Pentecost... The gospel is going to be preached to them. 3,000 of them are going to be saved, it tells us at the end of the chapter. And after that event, then guess where they are going to go? They're going to go home, and they're going to go home understanding the gospel message, though it was spoken to them in a language they didn't understand. They hadn't actually learn before, but God used the supernatural gift of tongues to cause that message being preached by the apostles to be understood by each of those people in their own language. Isn't that remarkable? 
I mean, nowadays, what do we do when we send a missionary to another uh, place? We got to send them through like four or six years of language training first so that when they get there, they can speak the language of those people. That didn't, that wasn't the case here during the apostolic times because the gift was given for the purpose of rapidly spreading the gospel throughout the known world. Just amazing. They were amazed. I would be too, wouldn't you? They were astonished, verse 7. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And these guys who are preaching, they're from Galilee. They've never been to our place. They don't know our language. How is it that we understand them? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're drunk. <laughs> they're drunk. They're just filled with wine. So, isn't this amazing? God gave this sign to authenticate that the message the apostles were preaching was from God. Proof of it was all of these people, people were hearing the message of the gospel in their own language from people who didn't know the language. That's what biblical tongues is. Okay. What now again? What is the purpose? Well, turn to Second Corinthians chapter twelve, because there's a lot of confusion in in the church today. Or the broad church is what I'm talking about concerning what was the purpose of those gift of gifts of tongues, those supernatural miraculous gifts. And there are some branches of professing Christianity that teach that those were the norm, and that if you don't have those miraculous experiences, then you are a second class Christian if you're a Christian at all. Well, that is so contrary to what the whole of Scripture teaches. That's why we're committed here at Cornerstone to teach the whole Bible, not just bits and pieces that we like that fit our preconceived theological positions. But we want to always be opening our hearts to what does God teach us here? Let him conform our beliefs to the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Now, that verse means something in its context, okay? The book of 2 Corinthians was written regretfully by the Apostle Paul. It is a defense of his apostolic ministry. The reason being is there were were these so-called super apostles who had come into the church at Corinth and were causing all kinds of disruption by their weird doctrine, their teaching that was different than what the scriptures declared, different than what the apostle Paul and his companions had spent 18 months teaching them on his first visit. And so he now says, I, I've been a fool, but you forced me to it. I, I should have been commended by you, and now I have to defend myself. 
which is the worst place any true spiritual leader following God wants to be put in. But Paul was put in that position. And so he's, he's basically saying, you want to know what an apostle is? Okay, well, let me say, let me tell you this. The signs of a true apostle, verse 12, were, per, were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what you, what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. He's saying, my apostleship was from God. I may not talk as fancy as those super apostles that now are in your church, causing so many problems. But I preached to you the gospel. It was my goal to make nothing known to you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was my mission, to take the gospel to Corinth, to preach the gospel to you, and to develop you on the basis of the doctrine of Christ. But these super apostles, these so-called super apostles, who are actually false teachers, were causing so much ruckus in the church, Paul had to stand up and say, this has to stop. This is what the truth is. So he says, these are the signs of a true apostle. So these miraculous spiritual gifts, according to the Scriptures themselves, and then according to the further development in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, clearly were apostolic gifts. They were given to the apostles for a period of time, not intended to be normative for the whole church age. So if you have any charismatic or Pentecostal friends who have come into your life and made you feel as though you are a second-class Christian because you don't have supernatural experiences whereby you speak in tongues and do all this other stuff, please understand the Scriptures say that is not normative for the Christian life. That was God's specific purpose for a period of time. All right? We are equal in Christ. And the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit comes and lives within every one of us when we repent and turn to Jesus, not just some of us. When I was in Kansas City, I worked at UPS while going to Bible college, and I met a man who was doing everything in his power to convince me that I needed a second blessing experience. That it wasn't enough that I knew Christ and I was growing and being fruitful and God was changing my life and making me more like Christ. I needed to have some kind of supernatural goosebump kind of experience to really know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. Scripture doesn't teach that. This isn't a book about goosebump theology. God works through our minds, changes our hearts with his word, and he continues to change us as we submit to the word of God. We live in a day and age in which a person's personal experience trumps the authority of Scripture. 
And that has infected the church big time. Big time it's infected the church. Where you can talk to another Christian and you can help them understand what the Word of God says and how they should submit to it, and they might say, well, that's not what God told me. God told me something different. Different than what he said in his Word? Are you kidding me? Do we have a God who changes every week? Do we have a God who lies to us? Or do we have a God who has given to us his complete revelation in Scripture? Well, let me show you. I'm glad you asked that question. You guys always ask the right questions. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is just amazing. Okay? So, who was it who preached on that day of Pentecost and saw the 3,000 people get saved? It was Peter. Peter had some pretty amazing spiritual experiences. If anyone in the New Testament would teach us to, re- to make our personal spiritual experiences the final authority as opposed to the Scriptures, it would be Peter. And yet look at what he does. He does exactly the opposite in Second Peter. Well, I'm, now that you're there, I'm, I'm in First Peter. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1, okay, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This is Peter sharing his experience of being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and seeing Moses and Elijah appear to be with Jesus there on the mount. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, they were present. We saw this. We actually heard God speak from heaven. Wow. Try to, try to beat that one with your story of a spiritual experience. But then look what he says, the very next verse. And we have the prophetic what? Word made what? More fully sure or confirmed here in the ESV. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Know this first of all. In case you're wondering what this prophetic word is he's talking about, he tells us. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Prophecy of what? Scripture. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If anybody could have said, I've had this supernatural experience. I am so close to God, and I'd like to help you get close to God too and have that same kind of supernatural goosebump kind of 
lightning bolt experience. You need to go back to the Scriptures. Paul, Peter directed them to the Scriptures, not to his experience. And that's what we do here at Cornerstone. We do our best, every person who teaches. We just do our best. We don't know it all. We're growing. But we do our best to open the Bible and say, this is the prophetic word made more sure. This is the Scriptures that God gave to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what we will do our best to pay good attention to. Because this is the authority. My personal experience is not the final authority. My emotions are not the final authority. Your personal experience is not the final authority. Your emotions are not the final authority. Scripture is our final authority. And we would do well to pay attention to it. That's what Peter's saying. Amazing. What a gift the Lord has given to us in the Scriptures. We live in a never-changing, ever-changing, never-non-changing society, world. It's always changing. Do we change the Bible with the times, or do we let the Bible interpret the times? Yeah. The second way is the only way to go. Three takeaways. I'll give you three takeaways from this study this morning. Number one, every believer should tell others about the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. That commission, or the great command, was given to all believers. It wasn't given to pastors. Oh, but pastor, that's why we pay you for. You know, that's what we pay you to do. We pay you to witness to my coworkers. I pay you to witness to my neighbors. Oh, really? Or have you been given a command, if you know the Lord Jesus, have you been given a command to tell everyone within your circle of influence about Jesus Christ and what he's done? Every believer should tell others about the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Number two, every believer should proclaim their faith in Christ through believer's baptism. Every believer. That is not only commanded by the Lord Jesus, but it is exemplified throughout the New Testament. In the New Testament, everyone who came to faith in Jesus Christ, let that be known through outwardly through baptism. So again, as the elders have been challenging you in past weeks, I challenge you again based on God's word. If you know Jesus and you have not been baptized biblically as a believer in Christ, that's a step you need to take. Number three, every believer should trust in the completed revelation of Scripture. Every believer should trust in the completed revelation of Scripture. The end of the Bible makes a very strong warning that we should not add to the Bible or take away from the Bible. The reason is because the Bible is what Jesus himself, as the judge who will come again, he will use that as the basis of judging us. So it would be good to pay attention to it. Would you not agree? Let's pray, and then we shall sing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity. We don't have to wonder 
What does it mean to be a disciple? You've made it clear in your word. Help us, Father, as we grow. We are all in process of growing. Perhaps some here today don't know Jesus in a personal saving way. Would your Holy Spirit so speak to their hearts throughout this afternoon and and this week and cause them to see that it is not through works of righteousness which they have done or will someday do that will save them, but only repenting and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. For those who know the Lord, who know Jesus, but who have not been obedient in baptism, would you so help them to come along in their understanding and their submission to your word? And Father, all of us, would you help us to grow in understanding and living out the reality that the Bible is our final authority, and we know the will of God because you have revealed it to us. Help us to pay really good attention to it and then to obey it with all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.